0: we got some work to do today. You guys ready? Awesome. Uh, that was actually not convincing at all. Uh, okay, it's a little bit better. A little bit better. Just try it again. we got some work to do today. Are you guys ready? There we go. We are about to go into an entirely new section of Genesis. So before we get into this new section, I want to review where we've been. So we start with Genesis 1 looking at the creation narrative. And one of the common themes of the creation narrative is the goodness of creation. Over and over and over again, God says it is good. We find a God who is a God of order and peace, a God that is overall, uh, he is transcendent. He creates man and woman in his image. Mankind is not some... Uh, accidental creation that the gods are warring over. We don't have to live in fear that God might collapse the, creation, the creative order on top of us because we somehow messed up. This is the story we see in Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 ends with the seventh day of rest that doesn't end, if you look closely. It invites us to consider that we can rest We can stop from producing and working and having to prove ourselves. We can trust in the goodness of creation and the goodness of the way God created us, that we are enough. We're introduced to Adam and Eve and how they are made of the same substance. it's not that man and woman are somehow created in different ways of different things and that they have different priorities. They are bone of bone and flesh of flesh. They are together. However, Adam and Eve buy into a different story than what we're introduced into Genesis 1, a story that says they're not enough, that God is holding something from them, that they need something else to fill them, that they need something else to have so people can look upon. They need something else to make themselves better than other people. And they buy into this story and they eat of the fruit and what happens is their eyes are open and they look at the world completely different now and they notice their nakedness for the first time and they feel shame, they cover and they hide and they blame. This goes into the next story of Cain and Abel where we're first introduced to the word sin and we see what death now looks like. Where brother rises against brother and takes from the other because of shame and because of feeling like they're not enough. And we're introduced to at the heart of humanity what our problem is. From this story, we go into the flood. The flood. Where humanity keeps progressing and it gets worse and worse and worse. And when there's no other option, God, through heartbreak, decides that he's going to start the world over again. But even then, he finds a partner that he can partner with, Noah, which means he rests. He partners with Noah and his family to redeem the world. And he starts the world over and what we see is this, the creative order collapses in on itself. Chaos is brought back in, but then God yet again restores order and the goodness of creation. Unfortunately, right after this, we see yet another garden, this time a vineyard. And we see another temptation and another crisis that happens where Noah has had too much to drink and he lays uncovered in his tent and his son Ham does something really sketchy. I wasn't expecting a laugh on that one. (laughs) He takes advantage of his father, and when Noah wakes up and realizes what Ham did, he curses not Ham, but he curses Ham's son. He curses, this is an act of revenge, not of justice. And then he, he curses Canaan, Ham's son, and then he turns to Shem, his other son, and blesses Shem. So we have a cursing of Canaan and a blessing of Shem. This will be important here in a minute. After this, we see the nations progress and develop. And we're told of the Tower of Babel, how the people progress east. They're always going east. Adam and Eve leave the garden east. Cain and Abel, Cain leaves east. And yet again, the people are moving east. And they decide that they're going to build a city in a tower to make their name great. and And so also it'll prevent them from being dispersed they settle in one location and they're gonna make their own name great. God comes down to see what they're doing and he says, if the, he says mankind can do whatever they set their mind to. And in this case, it's not good. In this case, it's, it's, it's not good. And so God decides that he is gonna be, he's gonna be benevolent and he's gonna diversify the languages and, and spread the people over the whole of the earth. Now, we are, after this, there's a bunch of genealogies. And what I, want, what I want you to kind of picture in your mind is that if this were a movie, we've just set up the entire plot line for the Bible. This is the entire narrative. And what we're introduced to is this idea of where does evil and what is the problem with humanity? We're introduced to what theologians like to call theodicy. And as this scene, as this setup fades to black... The next scene we're expecting, we're expecting to be introduced to the character that's going to change everything. Who's the hero of this story? How is God going to put the world back together? And so as, as black fades to picture, we're introduced to a family, a family that is caravanning. They're, they're traveling. And we're introduced to a guy by the name of Terah. What we need to know That we we left out of this section Is Terah is a descendant of Shem Who was blessed by Noah So let's pick it up with Genesis Now these are the generations of Terah Terah fathered Avram Now the order here is not necessarily Who's oldest But who's most important for this story In fact most people believe Avram is the youngest Because later he leaves his father's house Like if you're the oldest Your father's house becomes your house Terah fathered Avram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. So Lot is Avram's, not cousin, like I said, first service, but nephew. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in in Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, This area would be where we would consider Babylon to be, where the Tigris and Euphrates runs into the ocean, right around that area. In the Ur of Chaldeans. And Avram and Nahor took wives. The name of Avram's wife was Sarai. In the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now, this is at the end of the uh, law genealogy. And normally in genealogies, the, the women are not mentioned. So when they are, we have to pay attention. And one thing we need to notice is that Sarai is going to come up a lot in this section of the genealogy. So she is a key figure as well. But the thing we're told is that Avram takes a barren wife. A woman that cannot have children. Now, in this day, to not have an heir would be detrimental. Like, you, like you need to pass on your lineage to your children. So if you don't have children, this would, this would be detrimental. But what we're told is that Avram takes a wife and she can't have kids, and Avram doesn't take another wife. He doesn't take another wife to bear a child. This is the first clue about the nature and the character of Avram that he loves Sarai so much that he is willing to forego a descendant to be with her. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his sons, Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. So now you have a family of Shem going to the land of Canaan. We're seeing this blessing and cursing coming together. But when they came to Haran, they settled there about halfway. If if you're familiar with the Fertile Crescent, it's right kind of near the peak of that. They get halfway and they settle, which you should be thinking of the Tower of Babel when they settle. For whatever reason, the town is named after the son that died. We're not sure if that happened beforehand or if it was just coincidence, but for some reason it seems they settle here and and it's somehow connected to the death of a son. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, at this point, the Lord speaks. Now, what we often forget is that Avram lives, he has been raised in a polytheistic world. If you ask Avram, does he believe in God, he's going to ask you, which God? Because in his world, there's a a multitude of gods. And I don't know, I don't think that Avram is familiar with the Lord. I don't think he knows God. But, and so I like to picture it like God just like calls him up one day from the sky and he says, go from your country. And he's like, what? That's the way I like to see it. But this God speaks to him. And he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. His bet of, which is why we think that he's not the oldest, but probably the youngest. Leave your father's house. Now what we're about to read There's all these inclusions and references to a bunch of these stories that we've already covered. Even this reference to leave your father's house calls us back to the end of Genesis 1 where a man is supposed to leave his father's house to be united with his wife. Like we're already hearing about a man and a woman who are leaving and are united. He's called to leave his father's house and to go to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. We should be thinking of Tower of Babel, how they were trying to make their own name great. And we have this reference of blessing. We just left a story about Noah blessing and cursing so that you will be a blessing. And notice what it says. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. You don't get to curse like Noah did. I choose. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families that we just read about in the, from the Tower of Babel that were dispersed across the earth, all of them will be blessed by this household and by this family. God chooses Avram and his bet Av to change the world, to somehow put the world back together. And just like God chose Noah because of his righteousness, we need to ask, what is it about Avram that God chooses him what is it about his character and his nature that God says, I want you to partner with me? And not just you, but your, your family. We already got that first hint about him taking a wife who's barren, and he, he never takes another wife until after Sarah dies. In this culture, that, that would be weird. That's unheard of. Now, after this, what, what Abram does is he takes his caravan, his clan, his posse, and they start heading west. And so we see a family for the first time going in the opposite direction than, every, than what everyone was doing. Everyone was progressing east away from the presence of God. And now we read about a family going west. Now Terah started it, but he stops in Haran. He stops halfway. He settles for some reason. And so finally, Abram hears the call of God. And he starts going west again. He's going to some land that God will show him. We get this idea that he doesn't know where he's going. When Avram arrives in Canaan, the land that his dad was originally going to, God says, this is the land I will give to your offspring. The same land his dad was going to. Now, I think for many of us, the word that God would want us to hear is to keep going. For many of us, that plan, that idea, that that goal you had, that you settled halfway for. Maybe it was because you got comfortable. Maybe because you thought this was good enough. Maybe it was because there was a tragedy in your life. I think God would, the word he would have you here is just to keep going. Because what God wanted for you all along was that initial dream that you had. Keep going. So Avram arrives in Canaan. God says, I will give this land to your offspring. At this point, Avram knows, what, he knows two things. He will, his descendants will inherit this land, the land of Canaan, and that he's supposed to have a kid. What he doesn't know is how he's going to have a kid. The third thing he knows is that his wife can't have it. His wife is barren. So this explains the next story. Avram and Sarai go to Egypt. They keep going. And Avram does a sketchy thing saying, hey, Sarai, say that, I'm, say that you're my sister because you know, you're so gorgeous that I don't want to get killed. And apparently she was so beautiful that Pharaoh hears about her. Pharaoh comes, takes Sarai as his wife, which I know all of us in the room should be going, that's weird. And it is. But here's what I'm convinced. After studying, I'm convinced Avram was trying to set his wife up with a good life because he knew that the blessing could not come from her. She was barren. And instead of just ditching her, instead of just taking another wife or a concubine, he, he he was trying to be benevolent. What's great is God will not have it. And he visits plagues upon Pharaoh and his household, which foreshadows Egypt and the exodus later. He, he casts these plagues upon his family and Pharaoh freaks out and says, I, no, I, I can't do this. Gives Sarai back to Abram and I'm sure the conversation was awkward as they left. So they leave Egypt and they go back towards Canaan. As we're coming back to Canaan, the possessions of Avram and Lot have increased so much that they're always always competing for resources, that the herds of Lot and the herds of Avram take up too much space. There's never enough. And we read about two men who were in strife, a story we've heard about before that didn't end well. And here's where we see another unique thing about Avram. Genesis 13. Then Avram said to Lot, his nephew... Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. And this is what Cain should have said. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, Avram does not have to do this. Avram is the patriarch. He could tell his nephew, who's part of his bet of. His nephew, whom he, he adopted in some sense as a son, he could tell him what to do, where to go. But he doesn't. He gives the younger the choice. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. He goes back in the direction they came from, which means Avram goes west. Thus, they separated from each other. Avram settled in the land of Canaan. So you have a family of Shem now settling in the land of Canaan. Here's, what, here's what's cool about this little scene. When they come to the land, Avram doesn't just give Lot the choice of what land he wants. He lets Lot choose if he wants Canaan, the land God promised him. The the blessing that God gave Avram, he says, Lot, if you want it, you can have it. Like that's who Avram is. Avram wants to be a blessing. Even though God gave it to him, he wants to give it to others. Avram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Like, not something not good is about to happen. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. Now, there's this other theme throughout the text that we don't have time to cover, but basically it goes like this. Abraham is blessed, and then there's a mention of Sodom. Abraham is blessed, and there's a mention of Sodom. Abraham is blessed, and there's a mention of Sodom. And what we find is that from the beginning, we know Sodom is not a good city. It is full of wicked sinners who take advantage of guests. Like, we know it's not a good city. The key is how does Avram treat them? We go into this next story in chapter 14 where Lot, because he's so close to Sodom, when these kings from the north come down and they take captive and take the possessions from all these other cities, including Sodom, Lot and his family get taken with them. When Avram hears this, he goes in pursuit of Lot and not just Lot, but everything the kings took from these cities. And this is who Avram is. He protects his own family even though Lot obviously made a mistake, he jumps in and he does what is right. And he also takes the possessions back from the cities that had their possessions taken from them. And then in the next story, he come, uh, as he comes back and he brings all these possessions, he has this interaction with Melchizedek, the king of Salam, who is a priest of God most high, which tells you God at, has been at work in this land before Evram. We don't know what it means. We don't know what he's been doing, but God has been trying to do something in this area. And so he gives a tithe to Melchizedek. And then right after this, there's this interaction with the king of Sodom. And Avram refuses to take any reward for himself. He, he makes sure the guys are fed. He gives back all the possessions and he makes sure though the people that helped him get their cut. But for himself, he takes none. It's from this story that we jump into the next section, where God says this in Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision. Fear not, Avram, I am your shield. He just fought a battle, and he didn't take a reward. So God says, your reward shall be very great. But Avram said, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and my heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus." which... He took a guy from Damascus to be his heir. Not, not an extended family member, not someone from uh, Ur of Chaldeans, but someone from Damascus. When, when Avram goes to war, he rallies his trained men that he has with him, over 300 trained men, which gives you an idea about how big his family is, even though he has no kids. Because apparently he's just adopting everyone. Yes. And Avram said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Next slide. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. I picture like Lion King. um, Simba. And said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And Avram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness, which makes us think of Noah. Now, here's the difference, though. Here's the thing that we need to stop and pause and consider. These four chapters cover 11 years. It was 11 years ago from this moment that God first promised Avram he would have a kid. And in every chapter since then, from chapter 12, 13, 14, and here in 15, God keeps repeating his promise, which could sound like it's reassuring. But let me ask you, if you were barren and you desperately wanted a kid, and God keeps telling you you're going to have a kid, but no kid shows up, tell me how you're feeling. It's at this point that Avram believes. Now, he doesn't know that it's coming from Sarah. He still doesn't know because God hasn't told him. But in his mind, he assumes it's not coming from Sarah, which explains the next story with Sarai, uh, Sarai and Hagar, where Sarah comes up with the idea of, hey, it's she says, the Lord has prevented me from having a child. She assumes God has done this to her. She assumes God won't let her have the kid. So she comes up with the idea, how about you lay with Hagar? Because in their culture, that would be, a, that would be an acceptable practice. And they have a child named Ishmael. And for the next 13 years, Abram assumes that's the promised child. And then God shows up again saying, he ch- when he changes Avram's name to Abraham, and he changes Sarai's name to Sarah, he says, I will make Sarah a great nation. From her will come the child. And Avram laughs and says, may Ishmael live forever before you. Because for 13 years, his only child, he thought, he thought this was the child that came from Hagar, which came from, who came from Egypt. But God says, no, it's Sarah. Because Sarah is crucial to the story. God chose a barren woman to bear a child from which a family, a but of, would come into the world and change everything. After chapter After this promise in chapter 15, we see this covenant that God makes with Avram. Uh, They cut a covenant. God tells him to get all these animals. uh, and cut them in half, which is really messy. And they cut them in half, and all the blood's in the middle. and And Avram waits for God to make a covenant. And what they were supposed to do is the two parties would walk through it. And it would be a symbol of, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I do not do my part of this covenant. Avram is waiting and waiting, waiting so long that he has to beat the birds of prey away from the meat. And I picture like this old man with a a broom. (laughs) And he's waiting, and he's waiting, and then a deep sleep comes upon him. It's the same phrase for Adam when God creates Eve. He causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And while Avram is asleep, he sees God walk both sides of the covenant, symbolizing God has this. You can just trust me. I will make it happen. You will be a great nation, and every family of the earth will be blessed through you. I got it. But We're going to move towards our communion. And so if you're serving communion this morning, we'd ask, I'd like to invite you to go ahead and head, head on back. If you're new with us, we have an open table. What what that means is that if you want to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection, there's always a place at the table for you because there's always room in family. We ask that you would hold on to the elements until the end. That way, as one family, we can partake. Also, so we can wrestle with some implications. Implication number one, God will always work for the restoration of our worlds, and he always has been working. Sometimes I think we don't believe that, though, when we look at the news and we fret, and we get on our Facebook status. And God will always partner with humanity to do it. It's one of the things I find the most intriguing about our God. Like, he could just show up, he could snap a finger, like he could sneeze and just fix everything. He could have just given up on everything and started over. But he, always, he refuses to do that. He always works with someone. Always. I think it's in Chronicles or Kings where, God's, where it says God, the, uh, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro through the whole earth looking for someone who will be faithful to him. God's always looking for someone to partner with. Always. Because it's not, see for God's name to be made great, he's looking for someone else to make their name great too. Like that, that's, I love God. Our God's cool, I don't know. I would suggest you check him out. Implication number two. Other people may or may not do their part. They may and they may not. We can only control ourselves, but we spend a lot of energy thinking that we can control others. That we can somehow change their perception, that we can convince them to do something, that, that we can. We, we spend a lot of energy doing that. You can only control yourself, and I think that's enough because I can, I can barely control myself. We don't need to fret. We don't need to spend so much energy on others. And this is part of the character of Avram. Like he, Avram, when he sees something that needs to be done, he does it. He doesn't wait for someone to do it. He does it. When Lot makes a mistake and hangs out with some shady people, he still does what is right. When he has all the possessions of the, of the city of Sodom, when he holds Sodom's life in his hand, he gives it all back. Later, uh, when God is on his way to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it, he says, should we tell Avram what we're about to do? Because it's for this reason that we chose him, that he, he would teach his descendants to live in righteousness and justice. He knows that, God knows, if he tells Avram what he's about to do to Sodom, that Avram is going to flip his lid. And that's exactly what happens. Because Avram lives to bless and to not to curse. He's always fighting for people even if they don't deserve it. We can only do our part. Others may or may not do theirs. Third implication. God often works through our bad situations to bring about good. And this isn't to minimize the pain. This doesn't mean that we're trying to find a cheap, quick, easy answer that can just, so we can move on from the questions this does not mean that we ignore the ugliness of things in our life or that we stay in those moments. What this means is that we know our God is good and is actively at work and we can trust that. And so we're gonna, we're gonna try to find some way to tell a good story through this. Um, I always think of Jace Malik when he got cancer and lost his leg and could no longer play football. He said his goal in life was to tell other people about Jesus through football. So when he got cancer and couldn't play anymore, his question now was, how can I tell people about Jesus through my cancer? That's, that's our job, is to tell his story. And last implication. God's vessel of redemption is family. From the very beginning, when Adam and Eve, a husband and wife, were in strife together, God's always been trying to restore it. It's always been the promise. How are you then doing your part to make that of a blessing? It doesn't matter if you're single. It doesn't matter if you're old. It doesn't matter where you're at. You're part of a family. You're called to be part of a family. It's the, it's the, it is the metaphor for the church. God's family. What are, are you doing your part to make your family a blessing to all the families of the earth? Are you looking for people who don't have a family and say, come on in, come on in. There's always room. We'll get another chair around this table somehow. Are you, are you that type of person? Are you, when, the, when there's strife arises in the family, are you willing to lay yourself down to let go of your rights? Are you fighting for the good of others, even when they've made a mistake? Do you have the hard conversations when you, know, when, you know someone should, when you know someone should talk to that person. When you know someone should do something about that. You are someone, so get to it. We all have a role to play in God's bed off. We all have a role to play in this household. If you're not part of a family, there's this thing called care groups. You should check them out. Get plugged in. Uh, we have this thing called surfest coming up. It's a great way to go out to our community and to bless all the families of the earth. And then we come to a table every week. And if you're a Bible nerd, going back to our story, when Avram comes back from uh, saving Lot and he has all these possessions and he meets Melchizedek, Melchizedek comes and greets him with wine and bread. ho, <laughs> ho. That's good. So we are reminded of a priest as well, and a king, who descends from Avram, who came to invite others to his table, to be part of this family, who shows us what it looks like to love someone so much that you're willing to lay his own life down for us, and invites us to do the same for others. So on the night that Jesus was arrested, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, take and eat This is my body. When we eat this, we remember. Let's remember. Then he took the cup, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. And we remember that we're part of a greater family than ourselves. So let's remember. Father, I want to thank you for how good you are, how fierce you are, and committed to this world and to us and your family. I want to thank you that that you are faithful even when we are faithless that you will do what you promised. It might be 11 years, 24 years, It it may not be in our lifetime, but you will accomplish what you said you will accomplish. This story begins good and it ends good. Help us for those of us that are in dark situations to find your light. For those of us that are going through pain to find the comfort of your peace. To know that we are always with you, and you are always with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.